Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Talking Bay 94, the Star Wars podcast devoted to interviews with the cast, crew, and creators of a galaxy far, far away. I'm your host, Brandon Winerdy. In this episode, we are talking to Don Bees, a special effects artist and quote-unquote droid wrangler. From appearances in the special editions to being on the set of the prequels as one of the operators of R2-D2, Mr. Bees had some incredible stories, as well as some great upcoming projects. This is Talking Bay 94, Episode 5, Don Bees. So today I have uh, Mr. Don Bees with us. Uh, this is a huge honor, if only because I feel like of all the guests that we've had so far, I think you have been in the most Star Wars movies, technically, of anyone else. <laughs> of anyone else, um, I was trying to put together a list of all the characters that, that you at least had a hand in portraying. I couldn't find one for Empire Strikes Back. Is there one for Empire Strikes Back? Yeah, I was... Uh... Uh, Stormtrooper in, in the special edition, right, yeah, right? Mainly all of those in special editions, but yeah, exactly. No, yeah, we, we yeah. have to we count those now, or we count the special editions as, as the real, oh, okay. deal, so, yeah. <laughs> but thank you, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, my pleasure, I, thanks for asking, yeah, of course. So, I wanted to start kind of at the beginning of your film career, especially. Um, how did you get your start at ILM, and kind of what projects did you initially begin with, even before, before Star Wars came along? I was uh, I grew up in uh, Chicago, so there wasn't much of a film industry at that point where I, when I grew up there. And but I was always enamored with movies, so I I uh, mainly makeup, monster makeup, that kind oh, of cool. stuff, mm. creature makeup. And so I started putting put together a portfolio and of of work. I got uh, I, I I submitted it to Chris Wayless, who was had just come off Gremlins, and they were crewing up for The Fly, and he was located in San Rafael. Uh, the same town that Industrial Light and Magic was in at the time. And Chris is also an alumni of, of, of uh, ILM. So uh, I submitted my portfolio and and got got the job. And so I moved out to California. And through that, uh, through the connection with Chris and through the shop at Chris, there were, there were a number of people that worked at ILM, had worked at ILM and went back mm-hmm. and forth. So I uh, made really good friends, and still to this day, is a, I'm a, a, one of my best friends is uh, and a mentor is John Berg, who did the right. Walkers, yeah, yeah, for Empire Strikes Back, and um, and so we connected, uh, he and I connected, and um, you know one thing led to another. A couple of years later, they were looking for puppeteers for Witches of Eastwick, mm-hmm. and John John had put the, was putting together a crew, and he just says, "Hey, you, you know, you you busy?" <laughs> like, no, of course not. <laughs> So uh, I got to work for only a week, but uh, on on a sequence for Witches of Eastwick, puppeteering uh, one of thirty puppeteers mm-hmm. uh, for uh, a puppet of Jack Nicholson. And then the same, I think it was the same year, the guy that I, I through another company that w- worked in the area, um, I met this guy named David Schaefer, who was had been the R two D two operator for mm-hmm. uh, many years at Lucasfilm for ma- mainly for personal appearances because at that point they weren't doing any filming of anything. And uh, there was a whole series of Japanese uh, commercials coming up, whether Star Wars characters and George Lucas were right. going to be uh, um, in it. And David had just gotten a job uh, with Imagineering at Disneyland at, for Disney. Mm-hmm. So um, he suggested me to do the R2 stuff. And it's mainly because when Star Wars came out, I made my own R2-D2. Oh, right. <laughs> and, uh, and uh, you know, I, I, I was always using that as a portfolio piece. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, so that was the connection into Lucasfilm. And then through that, I met, again, more people. And, and then a job came up on, uh, I, I'm trying to remember w- what the first, well, I guess it, it probably was in Ann Jones' Last Crusade mm-hmm. was the first job I did at, at ILM. Mm-hmm. And then that led into Ghostbusters and then Fire in the Sky and wow. so forth. So. For uh, for Crusade, was that the Donovan death scene, or what specifically did you work on for for Crusade? Yeah, yeah, mainly it was a Donovan uh, death scene. Uh, the the because ILM was so busy, they were working on Ghostbusters two and Indiana Jones: Last Crusade, and probably a couple of the projects at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, they they were scrambling for people, so they hired Stefan Dupuy, who was the makeup artist uh, with Chris that one uh, Chris Raylis. That won uh, the uh, Oscar for uh, best makeup for the fly, mm-hmm. and so he put together a crew, and I I was on that crew. So it was essentially a Chris Wayless company crew uh-huh. that was just over at ILM. So myself and a couple other people from uh, Chris uh, Chris's company was CWI, and yeah, we worked for six months or something on that project, wow. and uh, and then I did a couple little things in in that that, that I did a puppeteering on at the opening of the film when. Um, He's getting chased as a young boy on mm-hmm. uh, on the train. They needed an insert shot of a snake popping out of the water. Uh-huh. Uh, so I puppeteered that. Oh, wow. And then uh, one day, a Saturday, you know, I remember it was a rainy Saturday in like February, and Mike McAllister, who was a visual effects supervisor, came into the shop where we were working and said, is anyone not really busy right now? <laughs> and, and I said, yeah, I, 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 what do you need? I can help. And. And he says, come with me. So we went to a stage and uh, they were shooting. They had a camera set up. So there's a cameraman, an assistant cameraman and Mike and myself. And that was it. And they said, he said, wave this uh, flag in front of, uh, of this red orange light. And it was supposed to simulate firelight. And Mike puts on a Nazi jacket. And, uh-huh. uh, and, and Duncan, who was the other guy, the camera assistant, He's trying to put on another Nazi jacket, and and it didn't fit him. Uh-huh. So he was a much taller guy. So they said, okay, swap. And so I got to wear the Nazi jacket. So I'm in. I'm Harrison Ford when Hitler signs the diary. And oh in the wow, close up of the yeah. So wow, so I didn't even we didn't I didn't even know what we were doing. Right, you know, time, and I guess because yeah. Michael Sheard played Hitler in that scene, Admiral Ozel from. Correct. And he went, that wasn't, he, that was a separate shot, right? Yeah, there was. Yeah, they had done all that in, in England or wherever. Wow. They, I, I think that's where they shot, uh, you know, they had a set and everything. But they didn't get the insert. They wanted an insert shot of him signing, you know, yeah. Adolf Hitler. Wow. And um, so we did that. We tended to do that a lot at ILM, you know, do little inserts right. here and there for stuff. But it's funny, I, I got to meet Michael years and years later, shortly mm-hmm. before he died. He was, uh, we were at a convention in Germany, of all places. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know, I, I, I talked, uh, we were talking, really, really nice man. Mm-hmm. And we're talking at dinner or something. And I said, yeah, you, I said, you and I have this connection. I said, <laughs> I said, yeah, I, I was, and he's, oh, he's great. So the next day we were, we were on a panel together. He and mm-hmm. I were on a panel, or no, actually it was just myself on a panel uh, talking about my film work and, and I, I'm talk, I'm explaining this story, and I realize I'm about to say to a bunch of German oh, fans, no. Nazis and Hitler. Right. <laughs> and, yeah. And I'm trying to like think, oh, am I, am I going to create some international incident or something? <laughs> That's uh, so so great. they, they took it in stride. That's great. Well, we'll have to add that to the list now. You were Boba, you're Stormtroopers, you were Bith, now you're Indiana Jones as well. So that's great. You're, That's you're right. really doing it all. 
Um, and then I will link to those Panasonic commercials because those are like watching those now are a trip. Those are just so much fun to watch. It's just George Lucas messing around in Japan. And it's like, what else could you ask for? So they were bizarre. They were really bizarre when we shot them. You know, uh-huh. we, we were we did them actually we shot everything with George we shot at Industrial Light Magic mm-hmm. and then they you know they aired only in Japan but but my first day on set was with George and Anthony Daniels and Peter Mayhew and and me and and my you know one of the first things I had to do was drive R2 wow. into a shot with George and and Anthony as C3PO and I you know I ran over George's foot <laughs> oh, no. and uh, so I it was trial by fire but yeah. um yeah they were really bizarre we we didn't quite understand most of the time what we yeah. were doing when we shot them so after that and kind of before special editions I might have my timing a little bit off but um, uh, you did some work in the archives, right, and kind of helped them organize and, and figure out what was going on there. Yeah, well, I because uh, the the connection I made to get the R two gig was through uh, a woman who was doing the the um, special events for Lucasfilm, a lady named Judy Niles, and she she worked with David Craig, who was the first archivist for mm-hmm. Lucasfilm, and he left the company. and And after I did, uh, oh, we put together a, in 1988, we put together this huge exhibition of Lucasfilm memorabilia at the Marin County Fair, which is where Lucasfilm is located. Right. And it was an amazing turnout. It, they had something like 43,000 wow. people come yeah. in five days, oh, and wow. it was cheap. You know, it was cheap to get in. It, you know, now you'd pay an arm and a leg to see this stuff but mm-hmm. uh, at the time it was it was at a county fair you know and after that they asked me to clean the archives they said <laughs> oh you know they so they hired me to clean the archives and then i stayed on and continued to do character appearances mm-hmm. organizing archives setting it up and everything that i organized the move from the lo- the warehouse it was located in to the ranch when they built the the archive building at the ranch mm-hmm. And I instituted the first computer accessioning program oh, there. Wow. And, but I was bouncing back and forth between film work and uh, the archive work. That's awesome. I think really my dream job, now that you said it, is just cleaning up the Lucasfilm archives. That sounds like just, <laughs> I just want to I just want to sweep. Just let me give me a mop and I'll, I'll figure it out. Yeah, it was it, the, the first two weeks. I, I didn't do anything. I just was like pouring over the models. And, oh, yeah. you know, I was, just, That's I was crazy. just like, oh, wow, this is amazing. So with the special editions, then what was the work that you were doing um, that kind of led to those kind of insert shots and extra scenes? What how did you get involved with the remasters? Well, I was I I'd left uh, the archives. Uh, a good friend of mine, Nelson Hall, took over as the archivist, and then I guess it was around '96. Uh, I guess we started shooting that. I actually came back to the archives, and I I, I was. I always say I was a second and fourth archivist at Lucasfilm because uh, Nelson <laughs> was between between me, and so I was just working at the archives, and they were they were starting to ramp up not only to do the prequels but uh, to do the special editions, mm-hmm. and so they, I was getting a lot of traffic of people coming through to the archives to look at you know uh, study pieces and you know photograph you know John Knoll would come up and photograph X wings to make digital X wings and stuff mm-hmm. like that, and so they it was just. Uh, I, the producer, the, the special effects producer, uh, uh, I knew, and he'd say, "Oh, we need you know such and such costumes." And do you know anybody who wears? Like, well, yeah, I, I'm same size as a stormtrooper. <laughs> so that's kind of how it became. So, uh-huh. a matter of fact, at one point, Dave Carson, who was a visual effects supervisor on the prequels, kind of banned me and Nelson actually mm-hmm. from being in it anymore because <laughs> we're. It seemed to be in every other shot, you know. That's so, funny. Uh, yeah. So, and then the the one the 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 um, 
the Jedi sequence, uh, we call the Jedi rocks. They were looking for the original, one of the original Biff helm uh, masks because mm-hmm. Lucasfilm doesn't have those. Most of the guys that had uh, wore them had got them. Mm-hmm. Um, there was one Bob Burns, a collector in L.A., had one, but Doug Beswick, who sculpted the original right. mask, ha- had one as well. I had seen Bob's in person, and I knew it was actually kind of in poor shape. Not, not, not. You know, physically it looked great, but it. It was not rubbery as much anymore, mm-hmm. so I w- was hesitant to use uh, suggest his, and so I called up Doug. I found got a hold of Doug, mm-hmm. and he, you know, he rented out the, his uh, mask wow. back to the company. So I wore one of the original masks, but and I said as a, I told Tom the producer, I said, uh, I said, the only way I'll, I I can get you a mask, I can get your original mask, but I've got to wear it. <laughs> so, so he said, all right. <laughs> that's so funny. Uh, yeah. Well, because what's great about the special editions, at least for me, that's how I watch Star Wars. I'm I'm relatively young, and so I was six when those came out, and so it was like my first Star Wars experience was seeing it on the big screen and so all the like jedi rocks for instance is like i was watching a documentary this morning actually and it had lapty neck in it and had the english version of lapty neck and yeah. I, I just like didn't recognize it at all I was like this is not my <laughs> this is not the one i know. Yeah. I know i know jedi rocks yeah it was a lot of fun i mean for me you know, the movies were a huge impact on my life the, right. uh, the original the original releases and to be able to take part in it even you know even though it was you know 20 years later or whatever you know, to 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 be able to even be in it and just be around it was was really cool. So, the Boba Fett costume I know is kind of the one people gravitate to the most, especially for the special edition work that you did. What was kind of the process there? I heard that you weren't the biggest Boba Fett fan to begin with, but but how was kind of stepping into that helmet and that role? Yeah, the it, again the the notoriety that's come. Because of it, right. it has taken me by surprise because it was a last minute thing. I'm sure you heard this story, you know, where we we uh, we were shooting the, the sequence and George came up with the idea before lunch. And then Rick McCallum, the producer, came over and because he knew that I was at worked at the archives. He says, right. is there a costume at the archives? And I said, yeah, I think I could pull one together. And he's, so I went up at lunchtime. Somebody drove me up to the ranch while I ate my lunch in the car while everyone else got to eat their lunch. You know, relax. I pulled together all the pieces. And, that, you know, I, I, I hear relentless criticisms of of the 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 quality of that costume. It's like, well, I, I had like 10 minutes to pull it together. Right. <laughs> and um, and I didn't know it that well. I mean, I knew I knew what the parts were, but right. I didn't you know, I was mixing, matching, grabbing whatever, mm-hmm. whatever we could find. And as a matter of fact, the backpack I had on had a big like fabricated scar in it because it was supposed to be post explosion when he falls off Mm -hmm. so that's why in the scene I walked kind of funny I walked sideways because I didn't (laughs) want to turn my back to the camera because you'd see this big mess of a backpack on the day it was the last one of the last things it was the last thing I think we shot Mm -hmm. and it was a really long day it was really hot in the studio we were just sweating a lot and i think it was like june or july we shot that and so it's just kind of like okay let's get this over with yeah (laughs) Uh, uh, but like i said it's taken on a life of its own since yeah i think it's probably one of my favorite behind the scenes photos ever right it's just you very casual with the mask off boba (laughs) fett like that is just the perfect the perfect picture yeah my my son is very proud of the fact that you know the the, you know it's like hey look it's someone's dad is boba fett and and, and, you know there's some every every few 
years it seems to go viral again all of a right. sudden the picture it, matter of fact what one year when it did it, it he's like well it's not just anyone's dad that's my dad <laughs> <laughs> so then moving from the special editions to then the prequels how did you figure out your role within those productions maybe starting with episode one i remember i think episode one is uh, the photo that um annie Leibowitz took of you right so you were you were pretty involved from the from the get-go if i'm not mistaken so they they had crewed up in the uk mm-hmm. um i was working on some other projects i actually was working on when when they started working on it at ilm i was working on starship troopers oh wow then they crewed it up in the uk they said we we shipped all the r2s and you know bits and pieces over to uh to the uk and you know i was like hey if you guys need a hand it's like nope we got it and then a, a month or so into filming we got a call from rick mccallum and just saying that they're having issues with r2 and stuff mm-hmm. and i think at that point i was working on I'm, i might have been yeah i think i was i had been already worked on the c3po puppet for uh, that was used in episode one and I was starting to work in the model shop at that point. And, and so, yeah, they, they called us, and it was me and Nelson Hall and Granny Mahara. We were the three um, mm-hmm. R2 guys at that point. And just said they were having trouble. And then Rick decided he, he's going to have the R, the UK crew build a build an R2, and they're going to have us build an R2. So mm-hmm. I led that team. And then I got to go over to uh, London for the for six weeks or so for shooting. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I kind of came, I was just right in the middle of the shooting, and I actually didn't even stay till the end of the shooting. Uh, mm-hmm. They sent me home by that point because we were done with R2. Again, we did uh, a bunch of insert stuff with R2 once it came back, uh, once they were done with main unit mm-hmm. shooting. And we actually ended up putting R2 in shots that originally wasn't filmed uh-huh. in, you know, green screen and then that sort of thing. Uh, there, that, and then they had that whole sequence where he saves the ship at the beginning, you know, right. you know the Queen's ship. And they had shot the... Um, the droid hold as a as a pickup shot in the UK, but all the stuff on top of the deck where he's you know bypassing the power couplers and all that sort of stuff. Right. We did that all at um, matter of fact. I bypassed the power couplers. Right, that little droid did it. Was actually you you actually did it. Yeah, that's, that's correct. Yeah, <laughs> that's so great. Um, so Phantom Menace um, finishes up. Um, you've had this experience, you know, building the Astromex and and really kind of shaping what that looks like. Moving into episode two, you you did also work with C-3PO, right? So I don't know how much with episode two, but episode three, definitely you helped with the, the suit and with, you know, making sure Anthony Daniels was, was comfortable. So maybe talk a little bit about your role with C-3PO throughout all three of these movies as well. Yeah, well, for episode one, the um, like I said, I w- it worked on the puppet. It was right. a, a Boon Raku-style puppet that a, a, a friend of mine, Michael Lynch, uh, right. puppeteered, and he actually ran the. He actually uh, supervised that 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 model or that. Mm-hmm. And so I got to build the head right. uh, mainly of the of the puppet, um, and also I. He had actually has a heart. You never see it, but it's mm-hmm. a little motorized thing that spins around. They wanted all any, little flat lights and mo- moving things inside. So I, I made a heart and I, I made the head. Episode two, uh, going into it, I wanted a, a kind. Of, I took the initiative, and, and months before they started shooting, uh, I think it was actually like October, November or something before they before they were going to start shooting in June. Mm-hmm. Um, I contacted Rick McCallum and said, just so you're aware, I said, you know, when I last saw the R2s, I said they weren't um, 
they weren't very in good condition. They, you know, things have been pulled apart and, you know, just there were, there was issues there. There were, so he had me go to the archives and, and like put together an assessment of everything. And, and then put together a budget to, to get them going and, and then ship them. And then, you know, he basically at that point put me in charge of the droid department. And we knew C-3PO was going to be part of that. Uh, but at that point, we didn't, you know, uh, we, we didn't, we figured, well, wait a minute. I mean, you know, last time we saw C-3PO, he was, you know, a puppet. He was the see-through, see-through-PO. So how is, are we going to see that transition? You know, no one knew at that point. Mm-hmm. And so even going off to Australia to shoot, I just kind of threw together a, a couple costumes because we didn't know, is C-3PO going to be gold or, you know, wh- what uh, what actually was going to happen? So it wasn't until I got to Sydney that we got then got a script and uh, read the script. And, and, the, and actually in the original version, C-3PO, was, you see him first as the puppet and right. then Padme dresses him. And then you see him in this, you know, patchwork uh, look of the thing. Mm-hmm. And that was so casual, too, the way that worked. I, I, I think I had gotten to Sydney on a Wednesday or something like that. And then George didn't show up till the following week. Mm-hmm. And then everyone was trying to have meetings with him. And then they brought him by our shop where we were, you know, doing all the uh, droid stuff. Uh, and, and again, still at that point, we didn't know when the first time you see him, if he's going to be gold or not. And he's like, no, I don't want him gold. I want him to be a bunch of different, you know, colors. And mm-hmm. and so he's he's like throwing out ideas. I mean, just off the top of his head. And we're, you know, furiously writing notes. And mm-hmm. and then after he left, we we the my crew and I, uh, you know, kind of brainstormed. OK, OK, we'll make this leg, you know, partly painted with the paint scratched uh-huh. off. You know, this arm is burned and, and mm-hmm. all things that he had said. I think that was like on a Thursday or Friday. And so so Justin Dix, who is a guy in my crew who's now directs movies in Australia, he and I uh, spent the weekend painting oh, C-3PO. Wow. We only had the one costume. Uh-huh. And so we displayed it for the first time with the first time Anthony Daniels saw it and the first time he fit it, he wore it mm-hmm. in like 10 years at that point um, on that Monday. And then we had him walk into the stage where George was shooting the film and, uh, you know, the camera crews were all there and everything. And, and that's what they, they like. And then, like I said, we, we shot Anthony wanted to puppeteer the C-3PO puppet from episode one. Mm-hmm. But we had to do a lot of modifications to it because uh, he wasn't uh, he, he had a he has a bad back. So we created uh, a quasi Steadicam harness on him. We made our own Steadicam harness with, with which we had to reattach everything. We gave it a little bit more articulation than the original puppet had. Um, things like fingers moving and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. All the stuff where he was going to be wearing... Uh, well, actually, no, I take that back. The one shot that he actually wore it that we shot in Sydney was when he got clad with the stuff. So we had a special pieces made of the C-3PO costume that could fit onto it and we had magnets that would grab it it was only the all the only scene was that you see she starts it she starts by putting the chest on and then they cut away and anakin goes and kills a bunch of uh sand people Mm -hmm. and then they cut back and she's putting his face on so we had a special rig for that and at that point then it was anthony in the costume and then the other stuff with the puppet was shot in tunisia and then they cut it all (laughs) so i was about to say uh, yeah yeah, that they cut it. Out. So I've never seen uh, uh, any of that footage actually, um, and I was always expecting one day it would be in, a, you know, an extended version or deleted scenes or something. But right, you know, they're saving it now. They're saving it for the big, yeah. 
big box set, yeah. right? And I'm going to buy it, and then I'll be like, well, it was worth it because I got to see C-3PO get his coverings. It'll be great. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to see it because oh, apparently yeah. they, had, they had finished all the work. They yeah. had, When they cut when they cut it, they had just finished all the shots because mm-hmm. they had to remove Anthony from the, the scenes because right. he's standing behind the puppet the entire time. <laughs> uh, so, um, yeah, so they had to remove it. But... Um, uh yeah and then for episode three he was he was gold again so right. we we had to we took uh all the costumes the uh, episode two and episode three costumes were all empire strikes back era costumes we we didn't uh remake them oh, wow. we we remade parts of little bits and pieces like the neck piece we remade because we gave him a little bit more uh, his adam's apple would always rub against it so we gave him just yeah. just fractions of an inch more space same thing with the chest we we spl- we splayed the chest a little bit mm-hmm. so he gave him a little bit more room we made a new belly pad for him the thing with all the wires on it right and was, that was out of a softer material the costume was essentially an empire strikes back costume wow we only had the one first for episode two mm-hmm. and uh we had we used two costumes for episode three because the gold was more fragile. Mm-hmm. So we always had a backup in case you know, something was going wrong. Uh, I, I do remember, I think they wrote it. I think it's in the novelization. I think they, they have the whole scene of her like putting the coverings on. And so when I read, I, for some reason, I read the novelization before I saw the movie like an idiot. And I was like, all right, like this <laughs> is it. Like, and then it was not there and I was very disappointed. But, yeah, um, I did that with Empire Strikes Back. I read the novelization before the movie came out. Yeah. So imagine my disappointment when I found out that Darth Vader was his mom. Yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> I mean, because you don't even because now with all these movies, it's very secretive, right? And it's all. But I think with the prequels, especially, I remember kind of coming up, you know, and that's I I always say like I learned how to use the internet because I was trying to find Star Wars spoilers. Uh, but it was a much more open process. You know, there was the hyperspace videos on the on the set of episode three right and it was just like you would never have that with really any blockbuster period anymore and so that level of openness i think is because you knew what was going to happen you knew it was going to happen at the end of episode three but i think it was the the direction and and kind of the excitement behind it was 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 something that will never really happen again so yeah that was i remember that being always a challenge pablo hidalgo was Mm -hmm. the one running around with the cameras and we had it in the r2 space a few times and we always had to be kind of conscious that the thing was there so that we don't accidentally pull out something that somebody you know we're going to ruin something so it was kind of it was always kind of like uh, oh where's the camera today oh okay we're safe you know yeah so with episode three i i read that you you helped with the actual we were talking about the endings and the and the kind of lead up to the entire last little climax of the movie. And uh, I know that you helped with the Darth Vader mask. Uh, do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, w- that was one of those things. Again, it came late in the production. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, they knew the scene was going to happen. And they shot the, the bits and pieces with uh, Hayden in mm-hmm. Australia. But he wasn't wearing a costume. He didn't wear, um, okay. I think he wore the shoulder piece. But they didn't have that. They didn't make the, hadn't made the mask, the special mask that mm. was, uh, you know, to be going on and, and how it splits, you know, with the top and bottom. Mm. So uh, so we got that at ILM. I was lucky enough to be you know, handed that one. And 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 so it was it was a funny story because the everything, the whole movie had an animatic, you know, going into it. So, mm. you know, when we would look at a shot that we're going to do, we're going to do a model for something for it there was this animatic and you know a lot of times they were crude sometimes they were great i mean sometimes it's like this whole thing could probably be in the movie as it is 
they had the the animatic for that sequence. And it, it, if you can picture the Darth Vader mask, he has those two like straw things on either side of the face. You know, there's one kind of straight uh, horizontal to the uh, straight across, and there's one that's on an angle that meets it at the front and makes the little tusks. Well, in the in, in Return of the Jedi, the, it split at the horizontal one. Well, mm-hmm. in this animatic, they had it splitting at the uh, angled one, mm-hmm. the higher one. And so they showed me the animatic, and I, and I, and you know, being not only the archivist, I matter of fact, I found that original part, oh, that wow. original mask when it was in the archives. It was in the bottom of a crate. It was, oh my goodness! Uh, the crate. The crate was destined to be thrown out, and I figured one last time I better go through this. And it had garbage on top of it. And I, I, what's this bag? And in this bag was this that that prop. <laughs> That's crazy. Uh, so we almost threw it away. So we couldn't use the original one because it was on tour in a in a museum exhibition. Mm-hmm. So that we had to make it. They're showing me the animatic, and I said, I said, okay, cool. I says, but you know, it splits in the wrong spot, and. And the visual effects supervisor is like, what do you mean? I says, and I explained the whole thing. And he goes, well, this has been approved. I says, this is, uh, this is what George wants. I says, I, you know, I hate to disagree <laughs> with you, but it's wrong. Right. <laughs> and uh, he's like, well, but George says, you know, George bought off on the animatic. I says, yeah, but the fans are going to hate you, you right. know. Uh, I said, can you, would you mind asking him? If I had seen George, I would have, you know, I knew him well enough that I could ask him this question, right. but I wasn't seeing him. I says, could you end the next meeting? Can you just bring it up and say it's in the wrong spot? And they said, all right, reluctantly. So a couple of days go by and they came back. They says, okay, George said, do it just like it is in Return of the Jedi, just like it is in the animatic. And I'm like, no, <laughs> it's not. <laughs> Like it is the animatic is wrong. <laughs> I, I was real adamant about this because right. I knew the fans would just like totally freak out right. if we put split it in the wrong spot. So finally, it got it got resolved and 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 we split it in the right spot. So that's great. So and now it's one of the most iconic moments in in the entire Star Wars saga. So so thank you for yeah. for taking the time. I mean, really, that him <laughs> like his eyes opening and the the mask closing like it's just. I mean, that's that's what all those movies were building towards. So yeah, and it was a real challenging prop to shoot because the, the they wanted it, you know, because of the screen ratio, the the, the widescreen format, mm-hmm. and trying to get a camera in there. That thing has got like an eight millimeter or six millimeter lens on it. I mean, it's mm-hmm. totally fisheyed, but it looks cool. It looks great, but you know, when when we were shooting it, it's like, wow, that's really wacky because it's really splayed <laughs> out. You know? Right. Let's go back to to R two because I know that that was kind of that's kind of been what people would probably most recognize you as doing, the R2-D2 2 and 3 especially. Kind of what was the process there of, of taking it from, you know, the Kenny Baker era? And I know they tried to do some remote control in the original trilogy, but then making sure that the technology was there to make it kind of a seamless process. All the um, R2s, except for one that we used on episodes two and three, and for the most part, episode one, were the original R2s. Uh, they're, they're, near as I could tell, there were six aluminum bodies made wow. for uh, Star Wars. Mm-hmm. And we, we still use them, including the Kenny ones. Mm-hmm. The, you know, radio control was kind of in its infancy when the first Star Wars was 
was made. Right. And so there were a lot of issues like interference and that sort of thing. And it was just incredibly frustrating for everybody. So, so many times, you know, they pulled it on a string or whatever, just dragged it by mm-hmm. hand through the shot, which we actually even did for a number of shots oh, just right. because it was easier to control. Mm-hmm. What we were able to take advantage of was more of a digital radio control technology that exists now. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was one of the great things of having Granny Mahara on board. You know, now a MythBuster was a MythBuster. Now it does a lot of stuff, because he was uh, one a huge Star Wars fan, and he just helped make, clean up the electronics on everything. Uh, we had two R2s that we called our A and B units for personal appearances since roughly 1987 when I joined uh, doing the R2s for personal appearances. But then they got kind of cannibalized during episode one by the UK crew. So that was the big job that we had on episode two was to bring that technology, simplify the technology totally. You know, we didn't want it. I didn't want it complicated because the more complicated the parts are, the more easier it is for it to fail. So they were incredibly simple. We were able to add very quick uh, battery changes. We put a lot of batteries in it more than it probably needed, but just so that we wouldn't have to keep changing the batteries. Mm -hmm. Because the way the original ones were, you'd have to take each individual battery out. There were these big gel cell batteries. They're about eight inches by, you know, four inches by five inches or something like that. And you'd have like four or five of them in there. And to change the batteries, you'd have to pull each one out, unplug them each. And mm-hmm. that's what. So we came up with a, a battery pack that you just dropped two big battery packs, added four of these in at, at a given time, doubled the, the amount of voltage or amperage and just able to two quick connectors and boom, it's done. We could change the batteries in 30 seconds, Mm -hmm. whereas it would take a few minutes the old way. So yeah, we just tried to make them more dependable Mm -hmm. all the way around. The other thing was is that effects that are in like R2's head in the original films were motorized. So like there's like the, they call them the logic lights. They're like these blue and white twinkling lights. And the way that was done is they had fiber optics going to a light source, but in front of the light source was a spinning color wheel. So just kind of like an old Christmas light or something like that. Uh-huh. Um, that's what they were. But there's this motor that just would have this incessant like little. And, and sound guys hated R2 because it made noise. So mm-hmm. so Grant was able to do a um, hardwired uh, circuits that that got rid of all the motors in the head. Not to mention put LED lights and, and you know, more uh, power-efficient bulbs uh, mm-hmm. in there. And so R2 could essentially, on a, on a set of batteries, could last most of the day. Yeah, we, we interviewed uh, Roger Christian. Oh, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And so, I mean, he's the, the one that helped build the initial one. It's kind of funny hearing how they kind of just jimmied it together, right? They had to just figure out, like, how is this going to work? Um, so this is kind of the, just taking it, you know, 25 years later and saying, how do we do it the same way? I love hearing those kind of stories. Yeah, actually, I was uh, I got to work with Roger on episode one. He was a second unit director mm-hmm. on that. And we, we shot a lot of scenes. It was it was our R2, but it wasn't R2-D2. It was a yellow droid. But we, mm-hmm. we, we did a lot of stuff together. We had a lot of fun doing second unit stuff. One of my favorite things um, I kind of talked about earlier were, you know, the internet was, for me was pretty much a conduit to just Star Wars content. It was that's all I really used it for. And uh, beneath the dome 
was was just like a random thing that popped up on like StarWars.com one day. And I was probably like right in the sweet spot of like the age where it's like the perfect, like like funny. And like I was like, is this completely real? Like what's happening? And so I know that you were kind of the mastermind behind that initial project. Maybe explain it to the audience in case they haven't seen it and, and kind of your, your role in it. Yeah, well, it ended up being like, you know, one of those um, e-entertainment, you know, uh, celeb exposés on R2-D2. It started out, actually, it had its genesis way back on episode one. I, uh, when I was on set in London for episode one, I was doing a lot of second unit R2 work. So I wasn't on the main unit, but there's a few days where we'd be on the main unit shooting with multiple R2s. So there would be four or five of us operating R2s. And I made really good friends with two of the guys that were, that were from the special effects department, Graham Riddell and uh, Patrick Johnson. We were doing the scene where the R2s, the, the, the um, Queen's um, military force, breaks into the hangar and, and they start. The, right, it's the battle right before uh, Darth Maul faces off with Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan. And to get a good shot of where how we could operate the robots from from that far from that far away, is we went to the top of the set and looked down on it, and then we could see everything. The problem is nobody knew where we were, so we would just be driving R twos around, and like we in between takes we'd be playing, you know, and R two would follow George around and stuff like that. We got to joking. It's like you know what we should do they, since they had the the documentary crew around. What we should do is we we're on that big Naboo hangar set as we should get like a big ball and have the four or five R2s play soccer, you know, together and film it. <laughs> and it's like this would be kind of fun. And then we could do something else silly with R2. And we could do this silly. You know, we started coming up with all these ideas. We never did it. So episode two comes along. And and again, I got to know the, the documentary crew guys really well. And because they were in everyone's faces, basically, you know, filming everything mm-hmm. uh, every day. And uh, I started talking about it with my crew. And I says, we should, you know, I told him, explain what we want to do. I says, you know, maybe it'd be funny to do like a day in the life of R2-D2. So we started coming up with all these gags. You know, R2 would wake up in the morning and see him then go in the bathroom, you hear the toilet flush. <laughs> yeah, just silly <laughs> things like that. Maybe we could take him outside and, and, and drive him around, you know, like because we were in Sydney, Australia, you know, by the by the opera house or something like that. You know, we were thinking, we were just having all these wacky ideas. Then we sat down with the documentary crew. We started talking about it and they said they liked the idea. And so we started brainstorming and coming up with ideas. And a a very good friend of Natalie Portman's, Elizabeth Tullock, was there, was visiting with her. And she was a struggling actress. Uh, She was young. I mean, I think Natalie and she were only 18 or 19 years old. And um, and they talked her into being R2's girlfriend. And uh, <laughs> and so she, they were doing started doing these interviews with her. And then because they were doing interviews with all the celebrities at the tail end of each interview, they would then say, OK, we're doing this thing with R2-D2. And and they'd explain it. And they just start asking them questions. And each one of the <laughs> the actors uh, and crew would have their take on R2, whether he was a good guy or a bad guy or whatever. Uh-huh. And and then it just started to, like kind of took on a life of its own while we're doing that. And so we're coming up with other other ideas, you know, and uh, and then George got involved. It, they asked George if it was OK. He's like, yeah, sure. And then Ben <laughs> Ben Burt, uh, who was editing the film and also doing second mm-hmm. unit on episode two, we're talking about it. He says, you know, there's that the Fox Studios in Australia in the center or all around it was the studio but in the center was like a public space where they had stores and on certain days they had like a farmer's market and everything well at the time they had a bungee jump 
in the middle of this place. And, and it was like 90, uh, 90 feet up. There was a crane over an eight-foot swimming pool. So Ben said, hey, what if R2 bungee jumped? And we're like, hey, that would be cool. So we asked George if it was okay. He said, yeah, sure. <laughs> and then we went out and talked to the bungee jump operators, and they're like, sure, whatever. So we went there on a Saturday morning, kind of before people started getting there. It ended up getting a crowd anyway. And then we had the idea, what if what if the, the bungee broke and R2 you know, crashed, and there was a tragedy and that sort of thing. And bungee operator didn't really fancy the idea of his bungee cord breaking on camera so we decided well what if we just pushed him off so i'm up on the top and we we did it three or four times where r2 actually did bungee jump we actually did it do it with the bungee uh, we made a special r2 just for that we had the molds so we we scabbed together an r2 a, a stunt r2 essentially and then on the last one, we took the bungees off, and I just pushed him off, and he fell into the thing. And we had a, <laughs> oh we had a scuba diver run and jump into the into the water, and we filmed that whole thing. Anyway, so oh my goodness, so it kind of after that we got we kept getting busier and busier with actual filming, uh, right. and and we kind of dropped the idea. We went on location and and didn't. I think we did uh, Anthony Daniels' interview on location, and then we just kind of left it. We got back to the states and. And about six months later, the publicity department from Lucasfilm calls me up and says, so whatever, what you guys, you know, what was the idea with that? What did you want to do with that? And we, and I explained, I said, well, you know, we never had really a story. You know, we had a, we just had this idea of like, oh, a bunch of gags, but we didn't have anything to string it together. We sat down, a group of us sat down and brainstormed some scripts. There was a, I wrote a script and we brainstormed different ideas and stuff like that. And we went out and shot then in the United States, we went out and shot sequences that could start tying it all together. And then, then we started doing interviews specifically with people, with Ben Burton, with George, actually, specifically myself, others that were, that could actually tie it together as a story. Then we got to we got to go back to the UK for um, for pickup shots. And we got Christopher Lee to which oh. to talk about it. And we actually had a really nice interview. It's the only interview that I actually did. Most of the other interviews were done by the documentary crew. But this one, I actually we sat him down specifically just to do this. And we told him what we were doing. And and it was totally improv, and it was twenty minutes of incredibly funny stuff where he was talking about how R two was somehow a member of the royal family and all this stuff, and he started talking about the history of the royal family. <laughs> and again, I've never seen the footage since. Then they took it, and um, at that point, then uh, I guess I <laughs> they had another guy come on. The original editor left the company, and they brought this other editor in that was doing other editing for them. And they just they just made him let him cut it together. I didn't have much input on it at that point. Mm -hmm. I wasn't totally happy with the way it came out. We had a different a different approach to it, but right. people uh, ended up enjoying it. And and then they th not only did they release it online, and they released it. Um, uh, uh, they had a teaser that was on TV. There was a there was a twenty minute or fifteen. Maybe it's ten minutes. I don't know. They had a, they had a, they had like a special sequence that was just created for television. That was, I think, accompanied the uh, premiere of episode one or something on national television. And then they also sold it as a DVD. That's the story. I demand now. I demand the R2D2 beneath the dome director's cut. That's what <laughs> I. That's what I want now. And. I will not be satiated until that happens. Well, we'll have to find all the footage. I'm sure it's scattered to the winds. Uh, I don't know whatever I'm happened. I'm sure to it. if there's enough, I'm sure there's enough fans out there that 
uh, people want to see that again. It was so funny because so you know so many of the things we just kind of like. Oh, wouldn't it be kind of funny if you know Francis Ford Coppola talks about how uh, he, we wanted him for Michael for The Godfather, and mm-hmm. and then Francis Ford Coppola was there and they asked him and he he went with it and he just. <laughs> You know, so that that was all like totally improv, you know, very few, very little of that was any scripted. And we just had to, like I said, then cobble it together with a story. So that's so great. Well, uh, before we go, I want to talk maybe about your your projects now and kind of what you've been doing and and how fans can see what you're doing and support what you're doing, because I I think uh, at least the projects that I've seen are are really, really cool. So maybe you can kind of expand on it a little bit. Yeah, well, actually, I've kind of left the visual effects industry. I, I've um, work dried up, so there was a, didn't have much choice. Mm-hmm. Um, I did do, I had my own company for a little bit after, uh, so ILM sold the model shop, and it became Kerner, Kerner Op- Optical. And then um, that company, unfortunately, uh, went away. Um, but after, before it went away, I left left it and I started my own company with my wife. And we created uh, a, a number of things. We did a bunch of commercials and stuff like that. But the big project was a huge exhibition of NASA memorabilia wow. that toured uh, the uh, Europe. And so that was a lot of fun. And what was cool about that is I we wanted to make, of course, models. Uh, so we made models of the other thing that I was always passionate about was the space program. So we got to make models of the Apollo spacecraft and and, and the sh- space shuttle wow. and that sort of thing. And who did I hire? But I hired the original model makers from ILM. <laughs> so <laughs> I had people like Steve Golly, Lauren Peterson, Charlie Bailey all wow. working for, yeah. for me making models. And, it, and they were amazing model makers. I'm, I'm sure that they're not that. Bad, yeah. Right? Well, the funny thing so was, is when I when I worked with them at ILM, they were supervisors by that point, and they didn't get as much hands on. So I never got to see, mm-hmm. you know, I never got to witness them hands on making them. I always had seen their, the results of their work, but I'd never seen them work. And to watch them work was absolutely amazing. So and and even better, they were working for me, and you know, we were having a great time doing it. So right. uh, did that. Uh, I'm actually currently right now working for a company that's a spinoff of a spinoff of a spinoff of the model shop. And we make something that's sort of kind of like special effects, but not uh, really. It's a product actually for the military and first responders and it's trauma trauma training mannequins. And uh, so these are very realistic looking humans that, you know, with amputated legs and and all sorts of injuries that then could be triaged by a medic in the field. And we even have now a canine unit that mm-hmm. that could the same thing could be done. But more recently, one of the things I've started, I've been trying to get back into just my love of filmmaking as well. And uh, it was almost exactly a year ago that um, Dave and Lou Elsie from the episode three uh, Creature Crew, we stayed in touch all those years uh, since since episode three, and we were having dinner with them about a year ago and we were talking about our love for film and that sort of thing. And we were all, we were kind of talking about horror stories about how, what happens on movie sets and projects and that sort of thing. And we just kind of said, we should just make our own film. And Dave happened to say, well, you know, I've got this little script uh, based on a a short story. And I, I said, well, you know, we can, we can definitely put together a crew and, you know, let's shoot it. Let's do it. You know? And so we got really excited and, and then he, He's really good friends with Rick Baker, who's, you know, mm-hmm. seven time, seven, eight time, nine, I don't know. He's won a hundred, a hundred Oscars, I think he's got. Right. Uh, about a hundred. Yeah, about a hundred, give or take. And he says, I, 
I, I, I think I can get Rick to play the ghost in our movie. And then um, real good friends with them is uh, Marky Post, who was on the 80s show Night Court. And she's continued to act all these years in various uh, shows and projects. So he says, I think she'd love to do it. And, and we could put her in this really old age makeup and stuff. And they asked and they said yes. And all of a sudden we had a project that now we had to shoot something. So I think it was six, uh-huh. 63, something like 60 some days from the time we came up with the idea to to we were shooting. And, wow. and I, you know, been doing small projects on my own here and there, working with different filmmakers up in uh, Northern California where I live. I contacted a friend that's a cinematographer and I says, Hey, you got this project, Rick Baker, Marky poster on it. He says, I'm in. (laughs) (laughs) And so then he, it wasn't just, you know, we weren't going to just shoot it with like a digital, uh, you know, camera, a digital, uh, uh, DSLR camera. Uh, he says, I think I can get an Aeroflex camera, which is a high end, you know, uh, cinema camera. So he contacted this guy that he knows that has one. The guy heard about the project. He says, okay, yeah, sure. You can have it. So he gave us that and a bunch of prime lenses. So all of a sudden, you know, it, it, like at every step of the uh, game, it, it was upping, you know, it was like, oh, God, now we got this. Now we got this. Now we got, you know, we got the thing together. Dave and Lou worked on the script. We had input on with them on it. We, you know, we worked it together. They'd come up. We decided we we're going to shoot it up here in uh, the town of Petaluma, where I live, which is five minutes away from where Rancho Obi-Wan is, where Steve Sansweet's place is. Mm-hmm. And so we just, you know, we got this uh, project together. We got a bunch of great, talented crew. Um, Mac Cosmetics, who, uh, who know Dave and Lou and, and Rick, mm-hmm. kindly donated makeup uh, at, for us and, and supplied us with a couple extra makeup artists because Dave and Lou couldn't do the makeup because they were directing. And so all of a sudden we had this like top of the line <laughs> crew with, wow, with yeah. this project and uh, we, we found a house, uh, an empty house, uh, a Victorian empty house uh, and uh, shot it in, spent uh, two days shooting and it was all done. And, and then, then, the, then the big work began of the post-production. And so we originally had a, a person I knew down in L.A. that was meant to uh, help us with post-production. He became unavailable. So we we took it and edited it and then we needed to come up with um, somebody to do a few digital effects in it and somebody to do sound and somebody to do the music for it and i did contact ben burt about doing the sound he expressed a little <laughs> yeah. interest but it was it was it was more probably more work than he uh, than he could do at the time so he right. he wasn't able to do it but um, i found another good sound designer that uh, up here that that loved it and helped out and then uh, we con- Dave contacted Phil Tippett, and um, mm-hmm. and Phil said, "Yeah, I'll throw a couple of my guys on it." And uh, wow. and so we had, I think there's something like thirty effect shots in it. They're not overpowering. They're you know they're they right. just add to the shots. And then music. Um, there's there's a, a friend of mine uh, that you might have heard the 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 fan film called Troops that was done years yeah. ago. Yeah, uh, Kev- Kevin Rubio. Kevin right? Rubio. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. Kevin and I are on Facebook friends and, and I said he, he made a comment about this composer friend of his, Joe Kramer, who had just recently done the last Mission Impossible film, not the, the one that's coming out now, but the one previous. Mm-hmm. And I, I tech messaged him. I says, hey, Kevin, I says, do you think Joe would be interested in doing our movie? <laughs> he said, I don't know. I'll ask him. So Joe said, sure. <laughs> so we got, <laughs> so got Joe Kramer to do our music. Wow. So um so it really kind of came together, and yeah. So now we've we we finished it finally in February. We've got it out to twenty two film festivals, 
and we heard from our first one, Berlin Film, Short Film Festival, and it, it was accepted. So uh, that'll be at the end of June, I think, in Berlin. And we're waiting to hear on another one now. The next, the next notifications don't happen till June or so, and then August mm. and September. Yeah, it's it's it it it, it was artistically it was it was a, a amazingly satisfying project and uh something that we all we all really enjoyed and we had we had the nicest thing you know people like marky posted said that you know it's the way filmmaking should be done and stuff like that uh-huh. the, the way you know the way the that we we worked it all and the good vibe that was happening on stuff. yeah so we had a good time yeah i mean the the end result uh, is incredible you were nice enough to send over a, a screener link and uh, you said to watch it in the darkest room possible with the the loudest sound you can, and uh, it was it was a great it was a great little piece of filmmaking, and I'm excited for more and more people to get to see it. Yeah, well, uh, and there's a keepthegaslightburning.com is the website where you can keep up to date with you know where we're where it's going to be showing for the film festivals. Mm-hmm. We're going to keep it off you know off the internet for the moment until the festivals. right. Uh, yeah. But uh, yeah, we're, we're hoping uh, that more people get to see it. So. Yeah, and I'm hoping that you you continue to do things like this because I think you know you you and your very talented friends all have a, a knack for this stuff, and um, I really I really enjoyed it, and I really hope that you you keep it up after this. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, we we hope so too. <laughs> uh, mostly selfishly because I really do want that beneath the dome director's cut, but you know we'll <laughs> we'll have to we'll help, me, help me find the footage. It's it's <laughs> buried somewhere in the ranch. I'll start scouring. Yeah, I'll, I'll sneak in. I'll, I'll make it work. Yeah. Uh, Mr. Bees, thank you so much for taking the time. This was uh, a great conversation, and and uh, I really, really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. It's it's been a lot of fun. And that will do it for this episode of Talking Bay ninety four. Again, I want to thank Mr. Bees for the time and stories he told from both the Star Wars universe and, of course, the Japanese Panasonic commercial set. For more information and updates about Keep the Gaslight Burning, go to keepthegaslightburning.com or follow twitter.com slash gaslightghost. On our next episode, we talk to the man who almost single-handedly inspired this podcast, J.W. Rensler. So stay tuned, leave a five-star review, and, of course, may the force be with you.